This is the Painless Health Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Avi. Living painlessly and in good health is our goal. We are here to help you get there. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Now let's have some fun and let's get painless. I've been working really hard on this latest episode, and this one is definitely a doozy. Substance use disorder is a disease that is known to man for a long, long time. Many people can think of substance use disorder as something that really isn't a disease, but a psychological syndrome that is controlled by one's own moral ability. But in full honesty, a patient that has substance use disorder actually has a disease that is inherited. And partially inherited, yes, but there are definitely genetic lines for substance use disorder. So people with substance use disorder can be difficult to identify and treat, as they may be hesitant to discuss the disorder with their physician, family, or even other people because they are either embarrassed or just don't want to discuss something negative. When asking such questions from a physician, there are always ways that physicians can identify problems with disorders and identify people with substance use disorders, but people with SUD can be very difficult to figure out because they are, as you may consider, cagey. Substance use disorder is a ubiquitous term that may be different depending on what substance that the person is using. So the key thing is that patients with SUD will have a tolerance and potentially withdrawal effects when using a medication or a substance. Patients that are using substances for the treatment of disease usually don't have this tolerance but may still have withdrawal effects. The issue with many substances is that usage of the substance may be difficult to quantify. It is easy with alcohol and tobacco, as there are fixed amounts per drink or cigarette or e-cigarette. On the other hand, when we speak about illegal methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, it is difficult to quantify the amount of illegal drug because the quantity of the drug may be different based on purity or if there are any mixings in the actual substance that has been ingested. So let's get a little bit into the different substances. And the first one really isn't a substance use disorder because caffeine really shouldn't be considered one, but I'm going to talk about it anyway as it is important. Although caffeine is the most consumed stimulant in the world, there is insufficient evidence to suggest that caffeine consumption should be stopped. That's why it really shouldn't be in this topic, but it was there on up to date, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Usage of more than 400 milligrams of caffeine for adults is usually unsafe. So children should use less than 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, and this is considered safe. If we use more than 400 milligrams, it's usually considered to be a little bit excessive. If we think about 400 milligrams of caffeine and one cup of coffee, meaning 133 milligrams, and espresso, 40 milligrams per shot, that is quite a bit of coffee or espresso, but that can be reached pretty quickly. 
Colas have a maximum of 71 milligrams per 12 ounces here in the United States. And different colas have different amounts, but 71 milligrams is a very strong, strong cola. Tea has between 40 to 120 milligrams per 8 ounces and can be variable. Energy drinks can have up to 300 milligrams per drink. That is getting close to the maximum amount of caffeine that you should have in a day. So when we talk about energy drinks and why they're unsafe and maybe unsafe, this is why. Caffeine withdrawal can cause headaches and is still debated as a common issue. If you've ever, if you do drink coffee or tea and don't have that coffee for a day, you can definitely tell when you are in trouble. Large consumption of caffeine can cause arrhythmias, headaches, tremors, anxiety, and insomnia. Chronic users are less sensitive to these issues. Caffeine is associated with a reduced risk of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, and chronic and alcohol cirrhosis and gout. Now, coffee is also associated with a lower risk of diabetes type 2. Many studies show that there is an inverse relationship between the moderate consumption of coffee and mortality. If so, if someone drinks a moderate amount of coffee, they may live longer. One of the things that was recently released is that drinking too much coffee can actually shrink your brain. So there are some side effects to drinking too much coffee. Now let's talk a little bit about nicotine. Smoking, vaping, and usage of tobacco products are the most common ways to ingest nicotine in the body. Nicotine is one of the most addictive substances known to man. Yes, nicotine is more addictive than caffeine. Smoking is the leading preventative cause of mortality, responsible for more than 7 million deaths worldwide and 480,000 deaths in the U.S. per year. We commonly ask many patients if they want to quit smoking, but it is very difficult, probably the most difficult substance to quit. Now, nicotine itself is not very toxic. The usual dose of nicotine per cigarette is about 2 milligrams. The estimated toxic amount is between 500 to 1,000 milligrams. The average dose for lethality is not known to humans, but high doses may cause poisoning. At low doses, nicotine could be used as an analgesic, and this may be why it is even more addictive than we think. Nicotine is being researched for several diseases, including ADHD and autistic spectrum disorder. Now, nicotine is very, very addictive, and the main problem with cigarettes and other things isn't the actual nicotine. It is the other substances that are in those cigarettes and other things that are consumed. And this is why people do develop lung cancer and other problems with cigarettes. The next topic is alcohol. Alcohol is probably the most legal, lethal substance available to man. Now, I'm not talking about cigarettes versus alcohol. I'm talking alcohol versus nicotine because that is the substance. So the cost of alcohol use disorder is approximately $250 billion per year. Now, when we compare the cost of alcohol use disorder to chronic pain, chronic pain is one of the most costly disorders, which is about $635 billion per year. 
Parkinson's is about 51 billion per year, and breast cancer is 20 billion per year. Believe it or not, alcoholism is about five times more expensive than Parkinson's disease and yet gets much less press. Approximately 30% of adults in the United States use alcohol in an unhealthy manner and therefore require some intervention as part of their health care. Now, what does unhealthy mean? Well, unhealthy means that they don't actually have alcohol use disorder, meaning they don't have the ability to drink oh, all the time or they get up in the morning and they want to drink. No, that's not what unhealthy usage of alcohol is. What this actually means is for men under the age of 65, more than 14 standard drinks per week on average or four drinks on any day. For women under the age of 65 and adults over the age of 65, this means more than seven drinks per week or three drinks per day. That is not that much if you think about it. So women under the age of 65 and adults over the age of 65 drinking more than seven drinks per week or three drinks per day obviously not just one week but multiple different weeks this could be risky use and could put someone's health in danger for men under the age of 65 more than 14 standard drinks per week on average per per week again or four drinks on any day now what this means is that these patients could actually develop things like hepatitis or other problems from alcoholism. So 19% of people that drink alcohol exceed the daily limit at some point. 9% exceed both the daily and weekly limits at some point. And 72% of people that drink alcohol never reach or exceed these thresholds. So 14% of adults more than the age of 18 met criteria for alcohol use disorder and 29% have met the criteria sometime in their lifetime. Now alcohol use disorder is where someone has an excessive need for alcohol all the time and then they're cagey about what they're using. So while smoking is the leading cause of mortality Alcohol is the th third leading cause of mortality that is avoidable in the United States. Excessive drinking while underage and pregnant has been found to result in 1 in 10 deaths among working age adults. 10% of people that die in working age adults have something to do with alcoholism. Causes of deaths are usually suicide, or exacerbation of medical morbidities and fatal accidents. So what health consequences happen with alcohol? The main one is hepatic disease, which is also known as liver disease. People are at risk if they drink more than two, yes, two drinks per day to develop liver disease. Now this needs to be over a long period of time, likely about 10 to 20 years, and they would have to be drinking every day. If you give your liver a week in between that at some point where you don't have a drink at all, your liver does recover from disease. Now, if you have cirrhosis, it will not 
recover because cirrhosis is scarring of the liver tissue. And this can be a completely separate topic about liver cirrhosis and liver disease. Many people do not develop cirrhosis despite alcohol consumption, but some people who develop liver disease, they develop life-threatening liver disease. Liver disease and hepatic cirrhosis is really awful. I've seen many patients like this. They can be slow mentally, have dependency to oxygen, difficulty with walking, edema or swelling, and they can have jaundice, yellowed eyes. It's, it's pretty difficult to see these patients. The other thing that can happen is GI distress and GI bleeding with or without hepatic disease. And people that use NSAIDs like ibuprofen or Motrin or Aleve or Naproxen with alcohol may be at higher risk. And these people sometimes can end up dying because they bleed out. And that is also awful. Withdrawal from chronic usage of high amounts of alcohol can develop delirium tremens, which is a delirious issue where people are delirious. And they can also have seizures associated with that. Furthermore, patients may have B vitamin deficiencies causing delirium, which may become permanent and can become permanent type of delirium. So that was a lot. I know I'm going to keep going, though. There's a lot more to talk about. I haven't even gotten to illegal drugs yet. So prescription drug misuse. This has been slowed down by pharmacies and physicians monitoring prescription usage with urine drug screens and what we call the PDMP or Physician Database Monitoring Program, or sorry, Prescription Database Monitoring Program, where each state actually has a database for prescriptions. Now, not all states, I believe there are 48 states right now with a PDMP. Despite this, people continue to be diverting medications, causing medications to be misused, and this can be very difficult to see, especially from a physician's perspective where you may have a patient that shows a positive for their drug that they're supposed to be taking, yet they still have somehow an, uh, a, they're still diverting their medications. So there are a variety of prescriptions that can be misused, including opioids, of course, that is one of the biggest topics, and this will be a separate topic at some point, stimulants or hypnotics. Considering this, this is much more than one podcast can cover. So a variety of prescriptions can be talked about later. Many of the medications can be misused. Our generics for some of these, including benzodiazepines, which look like alcohol in some ways, and stimulants, which may look like methamphetamines, and hallucinogens, which may look like LSD or marijuana. So I'm not going to talk about each individual prescription drug because I'm talking about a lot of them here. So let's talk a little bit about marijuana. Marijuana is... A, an illegal drug according to the federal government. It is still scheduled as a Schedule One drug. And what this means that there is no medical value for it. Now, this is definitely debatable, and I am not going to debate this right now, but the legal status of cannabis usage is variable. Some states make it legal according to the state. It is still illegal according to the federal government. So cannabis use disorder can develop in 10% of regular uses. users. It may develop con cognitive impairment. They may have poor school or work performance. 
and psychiatric morbidities, including mood disorders and psychosis, may be prevalent. Social networking in persons is important, meaning a person should not be on Facebook all the time, but if you're looking at this podcast on Facebook, I'd appreciate it. In any case, a positive relationship with parents, friends, or peers who disapprove of marijuana make it less prevalent as a use disorder. People that are religious may also have a decreased usage of marijuana. Other substance abuse disorders, including alcoholism and smokers, in the family may make the usage higher, as well as people that actually use alcohol and smoking. Now, what marijuana can be is a gateway drug. And what this means is that people that normally would not abuse things, they start abusing either alcohol or they start smoking and then use marijuana as a gateway to things that are much worse. Most marijuana usage is occasional, but there are some people that have early onset and late onset usage with continual usage. And 13.1 million people actually meet the meet the cannabis use disorder or 0.19% of people. Methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is classified as a controlled substance, which is controlled substance type 2. It is controlled like an opioid, like morphine. Even though methamphetamine is seen to be a, an illegal drug, it is actually not, technically not illegal. It is just illegal the way people make it and the way it is used. It is still used in rare, rare cases for conditions like ADHD. Again, not the way it is used recreationally or illegally. It is a psychostimulant. It increases the uptake of monoamine transmitters. Rates of abuse of meth is similar in the United States as in other countries, about 0.2 to 1.3% of the population from ages 15 to 64. The reduction of usage of pseudofedrin, which is also known as pseudofed, is, has decreased the amount of meth available as people are not able to synthesize it readily. Now, co-occurring psychological disorders were also found with people with meth abuse, including schizophrenia, bipolar syndrome, anxiety, and PTSD. Now, 35% of individuals with meth use disorder also have ADHD. Death with methamphetamine is about 25% higher than the general public. Read this again. People that use, that use and abuse meth die 25 times higher than the general public. Many have fatal overdoses with a combination of fentanyl and the stimulant. Cardiovascular disease is one of the highest causes of death amongst patients with methamphetamine use disorder. There's a five-fold increase in hemorrhagic stroke. There are risky sexual disorders which may cause STDs. There may be neurotoxicity with the amount of methamphetamine ingested. There is also inflammation throughout the body because of methamphetamine. Clinical manifestations are almost immediate after methamphetamine ingestion. This may include increased energy, decreased need for sleep, increased sexuality, excessive talking, sweating, grinding teeth, weight loss due to decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and dry mouth. Yikes. Psychosis can happen as secondary and as end result of methamphetamine use disorder. Stopping it can cause withdrawal side effects, 
which usually lasts about two weeks. Yeah, it can increase sleeping, depression, blah, 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 blah. Exactly the opposite of what normally happens with people that are using methamphetamine. So meth is not a good drug to abuse. The next drug we're going to talk about is one of the, another very commonly used drug, cocaine. It is again a Schedule II medication. It is still used as a topical anesthetic every once in a while, and usually with patients with ENT surgery or ear, nose, throat surgery. It has been substituted for the most part with other local anesthetics. It is commonly used in the Americas and is been decreased in, in the United States over the last 15 years as the availability and expense has increased. It is most used by urban men between the ages of 15 to 35. It is the one illegal drug most often associated with visits to a hospital and emergency departments. 40.3% of drug-related emergency department visits are related to cocaine, 36% are related to marijuana, and 20% for heroin. So many of the ED visits due to illegal drug use is because of cocaine. One-fourth of these patients are due to the withdrawal from cocaine. 6.3 are due to suicide attempts. Usage of cocaine can be either a binge usage, extended period, or self-medication. It has similar effects to methamphetamine with the addition of blocking voltage-gated sodium channels, which may cause cardiac side effects. Even though methamphetamine causes many cardiac side effects, cocaine actually has many more. I'm not really going to get into details of the many types of cocaine, but in short, it can be snorted or smoked. And duration of action is usually 15 to 30 minutes after onset. And if it's smoked or if it's in, uh, inje injected into the veins, or within 90 minutes if it's if snorted or ingested through the mouth. Withdrawal effects may include psychological features. Effects with specific organ systems can occur as well. Seizures, strokes, brain abnormalities, movement disorders, increase in heart rate, blood pressure, vascular resistance. Respiratory system can cause perforation of the natal, nasal septum, meaning respiratory ingestion, bruxism or grinding of the teeth, increase in liver enzymes, kidney mechanism may decrease, causing acute renal failure. There are issues with hormones, including sexual hormones, which may cause sexual dysfunction, vascular issues, and women may have irregular menses. Wow, that was a lot. Now, I am not going to talk about opioid use disorder today because that is a completely separate topic and actually a very important topic for all of us to talk about and I will get to that in the painless, use, painless health podcast at the next episode or the one after that or the one after that because I have a couple very special episodes coming up. We have two guests that are going to be joining me. One is an eye doctor. And then one after that is a chef and someone that is very interested in talking about nutrition and how to be painless and how to use your nutrition to decrease the amount of pain and inflammation in the body. So 
Thank you again very much for listening to the Painless Health Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Avinash Ramchandani. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Painless Health Podcast. I hope the information that has been given to you has been useful. Of course, I am a physician, but not yours. So please go see your physician for medical advice and further information about any of the topics you've heard today. Thank you again, and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.